if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. In just a few minutes, we'll pick it up in verse 5. But let's take a little uh, science quiz. Uh, human growth and development quiz. How many of you know what Braxton Hicks contractions are? If you know what those are, raise your hand high so you can see. Wave, okay. So if you've had children, you should know, you should have been educated at that point, mother or father, as to what these things are. Uh, for the rest of you, if you haven't had children, if, or if you're, if you're the, the, the dad who said, hey, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I just can't, <laughs> can't be there. Uh, Braxton Hicks contractions. I'm told, now, Understand, everything I know about Braxton Hicks contractions is secondhand. Are you with me? So I'm told that these are the non-labor, I'm told, less intense sort of practice contractions where the mother's body is beginning to warm up for real labor, for the actual delivery of the baby when contractions are full on and the body is birthing the baby. It's funny, they trick first-time moms and dads, first-time super anxious moms and dads, right? Almost every time with that first baby, and there's usually an ER run that happens only to get there and be told that it's just Braxton Hicks, go home, you'll know when it's real, to which this new first-time mom is thinking, oh, you mean it's going to be worse than that? And the nurse is like, oh, yes, honey, it's going to be a lot worse than that. And so they get tricked, and, you know, maybe there's a couple of those rounds of trips to the yard. But, but you know what? One thing that Braxton Hicks contractions mean for sure, they're not the real thing. But they mean the real thing's coming. They mean that delivery day is getting closer and closer. That's what they mean. They're not the real thing. They don't compare to the real thing. As someone who's watched personally, close up and in person, four different rounds of both, they don't compare. But they mean the real thing is coming soon. It won't be long now when Braxton Hicks contractions start before real labor starts and a baby is actually born. Our passage for this morning is a lot like Braxton Hicks contractions. The story we're going to, to work through today is not the main event the Advent season, but it's the prelude to the grand finale of the first Advent of Jesus. You, you see, the promise and birth of John the Baptist, it was in fact only a warm-up, but it was a certain pointer to the birth, above all births, the coming of the Savior of the world. And as we're going to see, it was in its own right a fulfillment of the Word of God. Of, of, of a Savior to come. I want to talk to you this morning about the powerful purposes of God and a plain priest. The powerful purposes of God and a plain priest. Here's the take-home truth. God includes faithful yet weak, even doubting, listen, and sometimes unbelieving people like you and me in His redemptive purposes in Christ for the world, all for His glory. In Luke 1, beginning in verse 5, we learn that, first of all, Zechariah, 
the father of who would be John the Baptist, Zechariah was, first of all, we learn, faithful in his ministry. Pick it up with me in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that this couple... Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless. That's not possible. We know uh, this is a statement that, that, that describes their devotion to God. Is, uh, Luke is saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth had given their lives to worship God as faithfully as they could. It was their goal to follow his commands and, and to live a godly life as a good Israelite should, and especially as those of priestly line. And even Elizabeth, as we're told here, was from a priestly lineage. Lineage. It wasn't necessary that, that a priest marry someone from a priestly line, but she was and he did. And so both people in this couple uh, were, were of, of a priestly line. And so of all of the couples that their community, their friends, their family, the people around them would have expected to be blessed by God, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were that couple. They came from the right families. They were living right. Verse 7 says, but all that good about them, all that great perspective about where they came from and where they were headed in their lives, but they had no child. That's a contrast. So, so here it is. They came from the right families. They, they, they're living right, but they had no child because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced. And you're just seeing that day, fertility and children were seen to be evidence of God's blessing and sometimes childlessness was seen even as a punishment of some sort from God for some sin. Now, Scripture does not say any of that. You with me? But that's the, that was the perception. Certainly, we would say when, we have, when God gives us children, it's a blessing. And there, there's a sense in which that, was, that, that much of it was true. But it, but it, was, it, 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 it doesn't talk about God not uh, you know, cursing people with, with that kind of thing. So... If you can't have children, it doesn't mean that it's a punishment from God. So here this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the couple that everybody would expect should be blessed by God, instead of being perceived as blessed by God, as verse 25 mentions, Elizabeth had rather been reproached, we'll learn a little bit later on in the text, by her community. They whispered about Elizabeth. They wondered about what it was she had done that God had cursed her by not letting her have children. And as the text says, her and Zechariah were at this point advanced in years. By now, there was no expectation on their part of her barrenness changing and them actually having a child. Verse 8, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, let me just kind of clarify what that's all about. So there were 24 divisions of priests, and each of those divisions served twice a year for a one-week term. And so wherever the priests lived, they would go up to Jerusalem on one of their weeks, and they would spend the whole week serving in the temple, except for the feast times that God had set up when all the priests would be serving together because everybody, the whole nation came together in Jerusalem, and it took everybody to get the job done. Verse 9, this is according to custom, the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn 
incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so Zechariah gets chosen to give the offering offering of incense, the the burning of the incense. Leon Morris says, There were many priests and not enough sacred duties for them all. So lots were cast to see who would perform each function. The offering of incense was regarded as a great privilege we learned from, from, from the other Jewish writings outside of Scripture. A priest could not offer incense more than once in his entire lifetime, and some priests never did receive the privilege. Thus, the time when Zechariah offered the incense was the most important day of his whole priestly life. Luke does not say whether he was offering this incense at the morning or the evening sacrifice, but in either case, he would have gone into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, just outside the holy of holies, with other priests, but then they would retire, they would, they would, they would leave and go back to the, to the, to the court and to the courtyard, and, and, and then he would be left alone. And when the signal was given, he would offer the incense. The worshipers were all out in the courtyard waiting there in the outer court until the priest had discharged this duty of burning the incense. And so here we see old Zechariah being faithful in his ministry. It's a big day for Zechariah. He gets to, to burn incense, and there he is dutifully and faithfully discharging his ministry. Where are you this morning? You know, God includes faithful, yet weak, even doubting, and sometimes unbelieving people like you and me in his redemptive purposes in Christ for the world, all for his glory. But so many times, God comes and gives special assignments to people who are being faithful with the little they've been given. Jesus taught this principle, amen? And so in the church of Christ, there's this principle God comes and uses us in even greater ways when he finds us being faithful in his power, that same power that lives in us by the Holy Spirit, of discharging the, 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 the everyday ministry he's given us so far. Zechariah was faithful to his ministry. But notice, even though he had spent his life as a priest... Even though it's the day of all days in his, if you will, in his vocational life, in his ministry life as a priest, still Zechariah was, secondly this morning, flabbergasted by and unbelieving of God's message through an angel. It's kind of crazy. Of all the days and of all the times for him to hear from an angel and not believe what the angel said, this was a crazy moment. Yet that's exactly what happened. Verse 11 says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So here's a quick temple lesson, okay? So let's just, I know some of this you're not going to be able to see, but let me just, this, this, you might find this interesting. So this big picture right here, this big square, this is a picture of Herod's temple, the temple that is in view right now. This is an American football field, if you can't read that. And this is Solomon's temple. So when the temple, when Solomon's temple was destroyed and Herod rebuilt it, he did it in grand fashion, over twice the size of Solomon's temple. And so if you can see there in, in Solomon's temple, go back one just for a second, Doug. 
you can see there's the women's courtyard, this big open space. You would come in through, through this gate or you could, uh, women's gate. And then up there where, uh, right in front of the big tall part, uh, was the outer court that, that scripture mentioned a minute ago. And then where, um, now the next slide, where, uh, Zechariah would have been. So this is that big part, the tallest part of the, the temple, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. Where Zechariah would have gone is through this portico and then another door into this area, which is the holy place. Then behind this huge veil was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant would, would have been. So this is where he's at. He's in the holy place, just outside the curtain from the holy of holies, and he's burning incense. Verse 11 says, There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, You know, that's a good reaction so far, right? You're in the temple of God. The presence of God dwells behind the curtain. You've never seen an angel in the temple before, but all of a sudden there's an angel there, and you're wondering what is happening. This is not routine. And and so fear fell upon him. But but the angel is so gracious. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, we might think, because he goes on to say in the next verse, that... uh, uh, that your wife Elizabeth, or in the same sentence, that your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. We might be tempted to think that this prayer was for a baby, and it could have been, but it doesn't seem to be the case. When we later see Zechariah's unbelief at the news that, in fact, he will have a son, plus, on this biggest of days in his priestly ministry, it seems a little, a little odd that he would have such a personal prayer. Rather, it seems more likely, Leon Morris says, that he prayed for the redemption of all Israel. It would have been a common prayer among priests that God would come and redeem Israel. Now, could it have been both? Yeah. God, would you come and redeem Israel? And and God, if there's any humanly possible way, if there's any divinely possible way, give us a son. Maybe. I think he just prayed for the redemption of Israel, personally. We don't know. And now... So let's just assume that's what he prayed for, that he prayed for God to send a redeemer to Israel. Well, now all of a sudden, this angel appears and in effect says, hey, God heard your prayer and he's going to redeem Israel now. Like now, soon. And your wife Elizabeth, verse 13, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's an interesting statement. John the Baptist is the only one of whom this statement is ever made in the New Testament. He was indeed a great servant of our Lord. Jesus himself said that uh, of John the Baptist, among those born of women, there is no greater servant of God. Verse 14 goes on, and he will turn many of the children of Israel. Listen, what's, what's he all about? What's this son of Zechariah going to be all about? He's unique, yes. He will turn many of the children of Israel to their God, to the Lord, 
their God. And he will go before him, that is the Lord their God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. All kinds of Old Testament prophetic references just soaking those verses. We won't take time to look at those right now, uh, all of them right now, but a couple of them. What makes verse 17 so significant is that it is essentially is a paragraph from two passages in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi was the last prophet the last prophetic or as far as we know even angelic word from the Lord that Israel had heard in over 400 years. And here's what God said to Israel last before this moment when the angel speaks to Zechariah. In Malachi 4 verse 5 he says, Behold, these are the last two verses of the book, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Isn't it amazing that God in his plan of redemption did not only provide prophecies hundreds of years before the birth of Christ about Christ, but God included prophecies about the forerunner of Christ, his cousin, John the Baptist. And so we have two sets of prophecies about the two players involved. We've got the forerunner, and in places like Malachi 4, about John the Baptist being prophesied and fulfilled, Luke says, right down to the detail. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the same prophecies about Jesus himself. Malachi 3, verse 1, was the other place Luke refers to here. And he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, isn't this beautiful? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It would be 400 years from the time those words were given through the prophet Malachi before he came. 400 long years of waiting and, let's just be honest, wondering if he'd ever come. But he came. And so in essence, when we read these words in in Luke chapter 1, in essence, God is picking up right where he left off. He's quoting the last things he said to Israel as he says a new thing now to Israel through Zechariah. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, let's just, let's just go back because we kind of went a couple different places. Let's go back to verse 17. You need to kind of, we need to make sure we don't miss this. Verse 17, or 16, 17. Gabriel says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah in front of the Lord their God, that is, in front of Jesus, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to wisdom, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You're going to have a son, and this is who he's going to be, Zechariah. And then comes verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Whoa, that statement is going to cause old Zeke some real trouble. Real trouble. 
real trouble. You may say, well, lots of folks question God throughout scriptures. Gideon asked God for a sign in the fleece twice. Guys, some of us were just reading about that and talking about that. Hey, even Mary later on in this same chapter uh, asks the angel, when, when, when the angel comes and tells her, she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin and have not known a man? So what's wrong with an honest question? Well, nothing's wrong with an honest question. The problem is, based on the language that, that Zechariah used here, it, it wasn't an honest question. It was an unbelieving question. As Leon Morris says, Zechariah speaks from unbelief as he reminds the angel that both he and his wife are old. His eye here, it's like he underlined it, put it in bold. His eye his in that statement is emphatic. I am old and my wife is past childbearing. As if he looks at the angel and says, look, I don't know who you are, but anybody knows that babies can't be born to people like us. And we've tried all our lives and it didn't work. I am old. How can I know this thing you're saying? How can it even possibly happen? You know, we're like that, aren't we? Sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Because sometimes you and I focus on us, the big I, an emphatic I, that we suppose is just too big for even God to work through and transform and change. And so we just stay where we're at with Jesus and our relationship with him. By the way, not really, you're backing up, right? If you're in your walk with Christ, if you're not growing and moving, if you're not, if you're not, if you're not walking, actually taking steps with him, then you're sliding backwards and, and, and you, he's not moved, you're distance, there's, you're growing the distance between you and him as far as your personal fellowship. Not your eternal relationship with him, but your personal fellowship with him. Sometimes we emphasize I too much. Zechariah did. You see, it ain't about me. It ain't about you. It wasn't about Zechariah, nor was it even about John the Baptist. Who is it about? It's about Jesus, the Messiah, period. And if God can send the Messiah who lived a perfect life, died a sin-atoning death, and rose from the grave, let me just tell you something. He can do whatever he wants to do with you or with me. You just, you just think you're that bad or that weak. We just think we're that dumb and unusable and, un, and unable. No, God is able, and it's not about you. Well, the angel had his own emphatic I statement to make to Zechariah. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, it's as if he's saying, well, so you're old. I am Gabriel. Hello. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Zeke, what's important is not who you are. It's who I am and who I came from. It's the one I represent. I live in the presence of God and he sent me to tell you some crazy good news. And you're going to look at me, boy, and say, how can it happen? You're going to tell me you're old 
as if I don't know. You gonna remind me of Elizabeth's barren womb as if I didn't know before I left the presence of holy God? I've watched y'all grow up. I've watched the whole thing. And behold. So what's going to happen? You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. You want a sign that God will do what he said? Zechariah? How can you know this? You can know this because that mouth of yours won't open again till the boy's born. In fact, you'll be deaf and mute. You say, whoa, never heard the deaf part. Well, it's okay. I was hoping you'd learn something today. What do you mean, Chad, that he was struck deaf too? Well, look at verse 62 of this chapter where it says when, when the baby had been born and, and everybody's trying to name him, they've already decided his name's going to be Zechariah like his father. His mama said, no, it ain't. It's going to be John. They said, John, nobody in the family's named that. We'll read it later. And, and, and so they go to John, and what does it say? They made signs to his father. Well, why didn't they just talk to him if he could hear? He couldn't hear. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah. So all this is going on between Zeke and the angel in the holy place. He struck deaf and dumb, and he should have been out a long time ago. So the people were wondering what's going on. They're in the courtyard there. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Zechariah was flabbergasted by and initially unbelieving of God's message. Not his finest moment. But we've all had those moments in our walk with the Lord, haven't we? First Sunday of Advent is a good time just to get honest with God so you can really enjoy the month. Right? We've all had moments or seasons of doubt. This is, yes, still in America in 2019. But we've even had periods or moments of unbelief. Where even though we believe Him to be our Father and our Savior, we just have trouble in a moment believing that He can do a certain thing He's promised to do. Or that he can help us in that particular situation that we just, it's got us, it's got us weighed way heavy down. God includes faithful yet weak, even doubting and sometimes unbelieving people like you and me in his redemptive purposes in Christ for the world. All for his glory. God came to a faithful, simple, plain priest, a guy faithful in, in, in the ministry God had called him to, to do, gave him a crazy good word, and of all the times for his faith to falter, he chose not to believe it, and yet. Yeah, he got struck deaf and mute for a little while, nine months to be exact, but, hey, think about it, God didn't take him out. God was gracious through the, through the angel Gabriel. He didn't kill him. He didn't say, fine, I'll use somebody. I'll make another John the Baptist over here in another family. No, God was still gracious to let Zechariah be the father of the forerunner of the Messiah of Israel. 
You see, Zechariah was thirdly still favored by his master in spite of his initial unbelief. Verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Now, that's just a real uh, simple, succinct summary of something amazingly wonderful. When his time of service was ended, so when his week was up, he spent the rest of the week there at the temple. He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Let me tell you what happened. God made things that hadn't worked in a long time work. And he gave life to Elizabeth's dead womb, and she got pregnant as an old lady. And as verse 24 continues, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. See, people were making fun of her. People thought she was cursed by God somehow. And what she understood is this is going to clear all that up. We're going to skip down from verse 25 to verse 57. Verse 26 to 56 is about Mary and the angel's appearing to her. We'll, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But in verse 57, the, the, the John story, the Zechariah story picks back up. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And, and, and they didn't like her answer. So they went to, John, to, to Zechariah and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. Actually here in the, in the, in the Greek, it's, it's an emphatically worded phrase. He says, John is his name. In other words, just like my wife told you, John is his name. Why? Because the angel said, you shall name him John. The one who stands, at the, stands in the presence of God Almighty said, this is what his name will be. And they all wondered. And immediately, his, Zechariah's mouth was opened, listen, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah learned during those long nine months of silence what his mouth should be used for, what his ears and his mouth should be used for. And when God loosed his tongue, he went straight to using his tongue in the worship of God. A great lesson for us all to learn here. Amen? You see, what he learned is that he should use his ears that when God speaks, he believes. Boom. Period. And then when God speaks, he believes, and he says, yes, and thank you, and praise you. Took him nine months, probably took him about 30 seconds after he was cast deaf and mute, actually. But for nine months, he'd been thinking about what he was going to do with himself when he could finally hear and talk again, and he did just the right thing. He did not, notice what he did not do. He did not, he did not start talking about the boy. Do you understand he's got a son? 
He blessed God. He praised God. Verse 65 says, And fear came among came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. More about John the Baptist after the Advent season as we continue on and study through the entirety of Luke's gospel together. But again, Zechariah, faithful in his ministry, but then flabbergasted and unbelieving about God's message. Nonetheless, Zechariah was still favored by his master in spite of that initial unbelief. You see, it's just true. God includes faithful yet weak, even doubting and sometimes unbelieving people like you and me in his redemptive purposes in Christ for the world, all for his glory. And again, all of this attention and detail and fulfillment of prophecy that we've been looking at this morning was surrounding, listen, it was surrounding the birth of the Braxton Hicks contraction. It was surrounding the birth of the forerunner of Messiah. Which is to speak not of the greatness of the forerunner, but to point to the greatest of who is the Yeshua HaMashiach, the Jesus, the Messiah. And when John came along, that's exactly what he did. Later on, we'll see uh, in the Gospel of Luke and, and, and pulling from other Gospels, here's the stuff John would end up saying about Jesus. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, if you're paying attention, you know, and you, if you know this story, you realize that's not true humanly speaking, physically speaking, who was born first, John or Jesus? John. How can he say Jesus was before him? Because he's God. And he was forever before him, eternal before him. He says in another place, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He said, I just baptized with water. The one coming after me, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John would say of Jesus one day when he saw him coming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In another place, he says, I am not the Christ. Be clear. But I have been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. Moms and dads, we never again, after that initial false alarm at the ER, once the baby is born, we never again talk about false labor, Braxton Hicks contractions, unless we're trying to relate to someone in the middle of it. But we remember, we don't even remember it, but we remember the birth, right? We remember the labor, moms, even dads. It's horrifying to watch. And then we remember the birth. John the Baptist came as Jesus' forerunner through faithful yet weak, doubting, and sometimes unbelieving parents. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were folks just like me and you. Which is exactly the type that God likes to use so that it is clear that what is done, He does in and through us. And when all is said and done, He alone gets the glory. 1 Corinthians 1, as we land the plane this morning. Verse 26. We read this just a few weeks ago in our study of Romans. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, talking to the church at Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that. Where does it all end? As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who gets the glory at the end of our salvation, every day of our salvation and, and for eternity for our salvation? The Lord. The Lord. That's why he includes faithful yet weak, even doubting and sometimes unbelieving people like me and you in his redemptive purposes, in Christ for the world, all, it's done all for his glory. Something huge was coming. And the friends and family of Zechariah and Elizabeth and little John knew it. After 400 long years of silence from God, God's presence and power is now again on the move among his people. But this wonderful happening was just the preparatory rumblings of the world-changing first advent, the birth of Jesus yet to come. Next week, we'll hear Zechariah sing. In verse 67, he starts singing. And in so doing, gives us an Old Testament prophecy lesson like none other. Next week, we'll listen to him sing, and we'll learn exactly who the Messiah would be. Let's pray together.